Welcome back to the Aging Project Podcast. I'm your host, Shelley Craft, and together, my friends, we're on a mission to age well, bloody well, if I'm being honest. Let's be real, though. We all need guidance when it comes to aging well, and that's why we've gathered the best possible support team for us. No topic is off limits, and I promise to ask all the right questions, your questions. Before we dive in, don't forget to join our growing community of women from around the world. Sign up at theagingproject.com.au and become part of the Aging Project community. You'll gain access to our treasure trove of podcast episodes, our free five-day morning challenge, and did you know we now have an online store called You Must Try It? It includes products we've discovered from our podcast guests and community. Think low-tox skincare, low-tox makeup, supplements, and more. You'll only find products we've tried, tested, and we love at youmusttryit.com. Are you ready to begin today's episode? All righty, let's do it. It's really important for your listeners to know that walking, cycling, swimming, low-intensity workouts in the gym, they will not grow bone. Pilates, yoga, it will not grow bone. That was Professor Belinda Beck, a woman who understands bone health more than most. We've asked her on the show because bone health is an important issue for women and we don't hear enough about the topic. If you've been listening to the Aging Project podcast from the start, you'll recall our very first guest, orthopaedic surgeon Dr Vonda Wright, who spoke about bone health and the need to bash our bones. I remember thinking that this statement felt a little bit jarring when I first heard it, but I suspect Belinda will know exactly what she meant. Professor, it is wonderful to have you with us today. We get a lot of questions about bone health in women over 40, and I'm hoping you can answer all of those for us today. Give it my best shot. (laughs) I know we've got some serious ground to cover on this topic um, and I can't even imagine the commitment it must require to become a professor in this area. So before we jump in, perhaps you could give us a little highlight reel um, for our audience to understand your background a little better and where this journey of bone health started for you. Well, um, as many research scientists do, I started investigating bone because I had shin pain. You know, when I was a runner and a hockey player, as a teenager, I had shin pain. I was determined to get the answers to why I got it and how I could fix it. Nobody back in the day, we're talking back in the 80s, uh, could answer that question. And uh, anyway, skip forward, I I did an undergraduate degree in um, human movement uh, studies, so sort of exercise science at at, uh, University of Queensland, taught PE for two years, hated it, uh, left and went to um, to the US and did a sports medicine master's where I started looking at the anatomical things associated with the, the shin and ruled out a few of the theories. And then I started getting really interested in what actually signals bone to remodel in response to exercise. So I went into a little bit of animal research And that's what my PhD was. I was looking at the mechanism of how we understand, how our body perceives exercise 
that was animal research and I, I discovered pretty pretty early on I, I just don't have the stomach for that killing animals wasn't something I wanted to do for the rest of my career so I, I went back into human research and I did a postdoctoral research fellowship at Stanford where I was working with an endocrinologist who was interested in exercise and the effect of all sorts of things but exercise on bone <laughs> and that's where I started to really drill down into how instead of using medications, we could actually use this powerful mechanical stimulus to help increase bone mass. So after my, my postdoc, I came back to Australia, started working um, at Griffith University, where I teach musculoskeletal anatomy and, to, and do research in bone. Right. So did your shin splints ever get healed, Belinda? Well, the good thing about shin splints is that they do, if you just leave them alone and let the bone catch up, they are almost always heal. Yeah. So um, the the moral of that story is you have to listen to your body and, you you know, you listen to pain and when something is unusually painful, you stop doing that thing until the pain goes away and then you do it slightly differently to try and avoid it starting again. And I just call it too much too soon. So you never um, start running 5Ks from just being sitting on the couch for six months. You know, you, you walk and you run. And, and if you do that, your bones are the most incredible incredible tissue they will adapt and you should be fine but you don't start training for the for the fun run a month out there is so many lessons in that for all of us, isn't there? And not just when it comes to our bones. I think it's, it's fascinating. We know as babies that our bones are still quite malleable. Obviously, at teenagers, uh, we would have had various growing pains, as you say, for, for the particularly sporty. There were things like shin splints and the aches and pains that we get. When is it that we transition from thinking about our bones as sort of growing to have have finished their purpose and where the height, the size that we're going to be. I mean, our bones. Um, I was fascinated to sort of think about the fact that they're like coral. They're they're living and breathing matter within our bodies. They're not rock hard, solid. Um, once they're at their length, that that's the end of it. Our bones are forever growing. Yeah, probably not so much growing, but they're definitely changing and adapting. So um, probably by the end of the second decade. Most of us have done all the growing in height. So the, the length of our bones has stopped because our growth plates, which used to be cartilage, that's where the growth happens, they fuse. And once they've fused, the bone can't get any longer. But what can happen, and this is how bone is so incredible, when you load it in a way that's different from the way it's used to being loaded, it adapts its shape subtly to accommodate that load so that it doesn't get damaged and uh, this is you know we use this all the time I mean the reverse happens too if you send astronauts up into space so they're in microgravity it's the bone senses that as unloading and you lose a lot of bone and the same concept is true if you have an injury a, a fracture and you put a cast on the bone and you don't move the muscles or lift anything then the bone will actually lose mass um, and, you know, this has been shown over and over again, same with spinal cord injury. The, the muscles and bones below the level of the injury will lose mass because the bone is not getting that stimulus which tells it to remodel. And the trick is, and I'm sure what we'll talk about more, is, uh, is exactly what it needs to be that right stimulus. Mm -hmm. So to keep our bones healthy, we just have to keep 
moving and using them and, as you say, loading them. So as, that's from our 20s on. Um, there's obviously a different type of, of loading that we need to do. Actually, um, if we could tolerate it, the kind of loading we do in childhood would be great for our bones the whole way through our life. And if you look at the trajectory of bone growth and loss across life, it uh, there's rapid, rapid growth up to age 20, men a little bit longer, uh, women probably if we'd stop growing around about 18, men around about 25, but on average roughly 20, let's say. And after that, there's a bit of a plateauing and then this gradual loss for men. At women, uh, there's a, a more rapid period of loss around menopause. But that loss, everyone talks about age-related bone loss, but if you look at it from my standpoint, which is an exercise standpoint and mechanical loading standpoint, when we're kids we run around, well, we used to, not quite so much anymore, but we, we run around, we run, we jump, um, we do all the kinds of things that bones like. The older we get, the less of that we do. And, you know, you just have to think about all the listeners. When was the last time you jumped? Nobody jumps. You know, it, it, it just, we don't jump anymore, but jumping is one of the best things you can do for your bones. So that loss across life, I'm not convinced that that is inevitable age-related bone loss. There may be some, certainly the bone, the cells get less responsive, but there's evidence to show that if you're a master's athlete and you've been just as active all through your life, right up to, you know, 100, at this high-intensity elite athlete level, you maintain your bone mass. It's incredible because we don't want to jump because we think we're going to break something. Right. right. And the trick is keep jumping because then you'll be okay. But if you stop and you start again, that's where the problem is. Mm -hmm. And that's something we can certainly discuss is how we get back into that bone loading exercise um, and how safe that is to do and what sort of exercises we can do. But if we're going with this idea that we just have to keep using our body in whatever form that is, doing um, heavy lifting, as you say, weight bearing, jumping is good for us, not bad for us. Um, where do the conditions like osteoporosis and osteoarthritis, when and where do they start? And are they inevitable? They're not inevitable, um, but probably few of us are that educated from a young age and dedicated throughout life to do all the perfect things to maintain our joints and bones. Uh, so certainly there is a genetic predisposition both to osteoporosis and osteoarthritis. I won't talk too much about arthritis because it's not really my area. The, it's very well known that if your parents or grandparents had osteoporosis, then you are much more likely. It's, there's a, it's a sort of a 70% genetic uh, condition. Mm -hmm. However, even if you are genetically predisposed then doing the right things, eating the right food and doing exercise, the right kind of exercise throughout life is greatly going to reduce your risk of fracture because fracture is not all about bone density measured by DEXA. It's about bone strength, which is the shape of the bone as well as the density, and really importantly, whether you fall because 90% of hip fractures mm -hmm. are a direct result of a fall. So arguably, if you never fall, you won't have that hip fracture. There's all, all lots of minutiae around that, but that, that's the general dish. You've got to stay on your feet, keep your muscles as strong as possible to prevent falls. 
okay, that does make perfect sense. If you don't fall, you're not going to get the injury, so you won't experience what happens post-injury. Of course, that's just for hip fractures. So the problem is one of the most common fractures in osteoporosis is the vertebral spine. So... Uh, and that's the one that, that, you know, normally osteoporosis is considered invisible or silent because our bones are inside us, but that's the one that we can see. So when people get the dowager's hump, you know, the curved spine, and this is men and women, but, you know, more commonly in women, um, that's an indication that a sort of a wedge-shaped fracture has happened in your spine and it's causing that curvature, and that's, you know, associated with loss of height and discomfort and all sorts of things so yeah it's you don't have to have a fall to break a vertebrae um it's much more common that it happens when you're doing something uh like picking up an overly heavy two-year-old quickly you know maybe putting them on the slippery slide or um carrying four bags of shopping in one hand so you can unlock with the other hand so you've got this very uneven load or you know some these are called minimal trauma fractures because these are fractures that happen when most people wouldn't fracture so that's a sign that you have osteoporosis if you fracture during that activity it means your bones are weak We've just launched something new over at theagingproject.com.au and we would love you to join our free five-day morning challenge. One thing I've learned here at the Aging Project podcast is that aging well comes down to you and me and the hundreds of tiny decisions we make every single day. And those decisions start the moment we wake up. So let's reboot our mornings today. Over the five days, we'll delve into the power of gratitude, the joy of journaling, the energizing effects of music, the importance of hydration, and the art of self-care. Just go to theagingproject.com.au and I'll see you there. So obviously, if you've got a family history of it, you're more aware. How would you know that you were heading down the, the road of, of weak or brittle bones um, without injuring yourself? Would you ever know? Do you feel it like you do arthritis? Do you feel that sort of aching anywhere? No. No, you wouldn't know. If your body stayed exactly the same, you weren't losing any height and you weren't getting any spinal deformity, you would have no idea. Or, or you trip over the neighbour's dog and fall and break your wrist. That's one of the most common ways to uh, discover you have osteoporosis because you go to the GP and he sends you for a, a bone density scan because, um, you know, even having a fall from a standing height, that's still considered a minimal trauma fracture. Most people don't fracture. All right. So this is then all about prevention. Where and when do we start? <laughs> well, um, ideally in childhood, um, uh, most most people with osteoporosis are older, um, but so if uh, there are you know people with with young children, uh, then the goal is to make sure that they're eating right, um, so they've got the building blocks, and that they are as active as possible, and not just um, saying right, my kid's going to be a runner. Running your whole way through childhood is not the way to healthy bones. Your bones pick up a signal from a, a certain kind of loading and they'll adapt to that. And once they've adapted, they'll go, right, I'm good. I don't need any more bone. I'm, I've, I'll do, I'm good just here. 
And so running is actually not that fantastic. It's better than nothing, way better than nothing, but it's not the greatest stimulus in childhood. The best thing in the world is a million different kinds of sports, lots of running, jumping, changing directions, all sorts of different things. And when I say jumping, it's actually the landing that's important. So, um, uh, so that's great for kids and young, healthy adults. You stay as active with those kinds of activities as long as you can. Or if you discover you have osteoporosis or even osteopenia, which is low bone mass, later in life, then you have to be a little more careful because obviously a sudden, you don't want to be causing the fractures you're trying to prevent, you know. People some even, you know, they might step suddenly off a curb and come down, jolt hard onto their heel. You can even have a vertebral fracture from that. So you don't want to go straight into doing that kind of activity. It's a very gradual kind of uh, introduction but exercise at any time of your life in almost any form is going to be beneficial but not all of it will grow bone. Belinda you've dedicated your life to healthy bones meaning healthy people um, and you've developed the bone clinic which is right here in Australia how did this come about? Was this sort of developed um, out of the research that you did, obviously, but what was the idea of starting a place specifically designed for bone health? Until we opened the clinic, there was, there was no place for people to go to have experts assess them uh, fully and then give them a combination of exercise and dietary advice specific for osteoporosis and then actually um, supervise them while they're exercising and monitor their progress. Right. So what would treatment have looked like prior to the bone clinic? What would you have done with your clients? Uh, well, so because I'm an academic, I didn't, I'm, you know, not a clinician myself, so I, I wasn't treating anybody. I was doing research and, and which is I'll come back to because that's what led us to open the clinic. But before that, for people with osteoporosis, they would have gone to the doctor and the doctor probably would have said, here's your prescription for this medication and, um, you know, eat some calcium and go for a walk. And uh, we know that um, that recommendation to walk is not only not effective, walking doesn't increase bone enough uh, to protect you from fracture, that for people who are very frail, actually a recommendation of walking is dangerous because it might increase their risk of falling. And as we've said, you know, falls are, are the, the nemesis of osteoporosis. The reason why I do... I made the decision to open a bone clinic when I had a perfectly good job. I still have a perfectly good job at a university um, was because we had done research to um, look into this higher intensity exercise for uh, osteoporosis that hadn't been done before because people were nervous as we were talking before about hurting people and people fracturing and, and But nobody had actually tested whether that would be the case. So we finally just bit the bullet, and that's what the LIFTMORE trial was. We, we recruited people with uh, women, postmenopausal women, with low to very low bone mass, and we randomly allocated them to either this high-intensity exercise program or to a very low-intensity home program, a little bit of stretching, a little bit of walking. And we supervised them very carefully, and we loaded them up 
And at the end of eight months, you have to do at least eight months to be able to measure bone because it changes very slowly. Lo and behold, not only have we grown bone, but we hadn't hurt anybody. And this was the this was the trick. It was fully supervised. So we we had confidence that we could do this new program that everybody thought was too risky as long as it was supervised. So I opened the clinic so that not only could I be certain that people were being looked after when they were doing the exercise by people who were experts, but also so that I could test whether it worked in the real world because in a randomised controlled trial, in a clinical trial we do in the university, everything is very controlled. You recruit people who you think you're not going to hurt. So, you know, we screened out lots of people with all sorts of different conditions. But in the real world, everybody's got everything. And, you know, it's very rare in this demographic to have someone walk through the door who doesn't have something wrong with them. It's normally arthritis but there's a lot of pelvic floor problems, there's heaps of frozen shoulders, and there's all the neurological things, like cardiac, there's breast cancer recovery, all that stuff. So what the bone clinic is, is it's a research facility where we do the exact same testing as we did in the clinical trials, plus we measure their bones on DEXA, and we send, send them to a dietitian, and the dietitian gives them lots of good advice, and then we say, right, now you can come and do our program, and because we know all about you, we can look after those other conditions as well. So that was sort of the motivation. But, of course, because I'm a scientist through and through, I'm interested in the data. So every 12 months they come back and they have another um, assessment. And the great news is it works in the real world too, and it works really, really well, and people love it. So this isn't just getting a personal trainer, is it? Not deciding, okay, I'm going to join the gym. I, I'm going to let them know that I've got a couple of niggling injuries. Um, I'm on some medication, but I've now been told I've got to bash my bones, for want of a better word, and I'm going to the gym. This is a very specified, as you say, controlled environment with not just personal trainers, but um, I'm imagining this is osteos and physiotherapists um, and other practitioners as well that have been specifically trained in this modality of, at the bone clinic? We, um, all my staff are exercise physiologists and these are, because at Griffith I teach both physiotherapists and exercise physiologists, I know the difference and the EPs do a very similar sort of fundamental training in anatomy and biomechanics and physiology and all of those things as the physios. But then physios tend to manage injuries and different conditions, whereas exercise physiologists, they do manage conditions, but they also are highly preventative. So uh, they're trying to give exercise programs to people to prevent other conditions. Anyway, they're highly trained. Um, if it's a four-year degree, uh, and these are the guys that I used to, to coach. Now, it's one of the first problems we ran into when we opened the clinic is that it was so popular, everybody wanted to do the program. But I was just saying, I'm not just giving this program out to everybody because it will, number one, IP. <laughs> so, um, but, but, but mainly because I didn't want to be responsible for hurting people everywhere because they were doing it properly. It's the, the technique is really important. So that's what you need somebody to be watching you. And the progressions are important and making sure that you're lifting enough. Otherwise, you may as well just be going to the gym. So mm -hmm. we license the program and I do 
distribute that license to physiotherapists and EPs. So all around Australia and I've just got, I don't know, about six or seven um, licenses over um, overseas and people are running the program elsewhere. So it's growing. It's not everywhere yet, but it's we're certainly doing our best. It's called Oniro and um, you can find it just by searching Oniro locations. Fantastic. So these uh, physiologists and, and physiotherapists have now been trained in Oniro yes. and they can deliver that in their own clinics or their own um, offices around the country. Correct. That's right. Exactly the same way as we do. They're not um, they're not bone clinics like us. They don't do the research so much. They, they do assessments, but then their mm-hmm. primary goal is just delivering the program safely to their clients and, and their community. So, Belinda, is it about working up a sweat? Are you actually doing a workout or is it those slow, controlled muscle movements uh, that are load-bearing on the bones? What, what, what is a typical exercise that we might all know that's something that would be involved in this program, just so we can get an idea? These are um, primarily large compound movements. So, yes, you'll probably sweat a little bit, but this is not like going for a run. I mean, there are many people who come from work in their lunch hour, well, not many people, but some people come from work in their lunch hour, you know, just put a shorts and T-shirt on, do, and then just get changed back into their work clothes and go back. You are not dripping wet in sweat when you do it mm-hmm. because it is, it's very, very targeted. It's, so it's 45 minutes, but that's mainly because we we do the the exercises as well as we've put some um, balance and mobility exercises in there because of course we're trying to stop people falling as well the exercises themselves prevent falls but balance is a really it's a niche uh skill and you really do need to practice it so we put those in so people can practice those at home as well and so the i guess long answer to a short question it's not really a big sweaty workout it's it is it's heavy lifting um but it's you're not going to come away from there feeling like you've run a marathon. Mm-hmm. And do they talk diet there as well, or do you need to get that advice from your uh, a dietitian or, or a separate practitioner, or is that all part of the program? Yeah, it's all part of it. So I um, j- just the, in the same way as I keep my eye on the science for exercise and what we do there, I keep a very close eye on what comes out that's new in diet and nutrition for bone. I'm not a nutritionist, but I've got two fabulous dietitians who've been working with us for quite some time. And I think I would go out on the line and say that these guys know more about bone food than anyone else in Australia They because they keep right up with the literature and they see people constantly with every kind of diet you can imagine. Most people ask the same kinds of questions, um, I don't like milk, what can I have instead of, you know, what's the best yogurt and what about this vitamin K I'm hearing about? And so they've got all the answers to those kinds of things. Um, Many people we're seeing these days are vegan and so, you know, we need to be able to direct them to the food sources um, that are best in that respect. And as far as just heading out there and hitting the pavement, best, of course, to get some advice first. Not all exercise is good for you. Being punched in the head by a very big man with boxing gloves, I don't think that's necessarily very good for you. But but just about every kind of nonviolent exercise is good for you because it's good for all systems of your body. 
And it's better to do something than nothing. But it's really important for your listeners to know that walking, cycling, swimming, low-intensity workouts in the gym, they will not grow bone. Pilates, yoga, it will not grow bone. And it doesn't, there are lots of people who say that it will because they want it to, but the evidence, the good quality scientific evidence shows that it won't. Now, I'm not anti any of those things. They're very good for you, but they're not going to grow bone. Now, I know it's a bit uh, controversial, my comments about Pilates and yoga. Again, they're fabulous things. But we did a study where we used Pilates as one of our exercise groups and people lost 1.5% of bone at the spine over eight months. It's We have the evidence. Pilates does not grow bone. So again, do your Pilates, but add some HIIT in there as well. Definitely add your lifts. Get some heavy weights. Absolutely. Have you heard the news? Our sister platform, You Must Try It, now offers one-on-one health coaching via Zoom with our team of qualified experts. Our store exists to offer you more than our tried and tested products. We want you to age well, and at the foundation of that is your health. Let me share Lou's feedback, one of our recent customers. She wrote, I still can't believe how much we got through in an hour. I was offered the most detailed personal advice I've ever had. I've been talking to all my friends about their health coaching sessions and my experience. The friends that have already had their session couldn't be happier. Thank you, Lou. So if you're struggling with a health issue, perhaps a gut, a thyroid, weight, energy or sleep issue, or maybe like Lou, you just want to optimise your health, our You Must Try It team of qualified health coaches would love to help you. They can help with everything from blood, hormone and food sensitivity testing to practical strategies so you know what to do and buy that is actually going to work. Just go to youmusttryit.com and book your appointment and let's take action to age well, my friends. So let's talk about perimenopause and menopause and whether that, what effect that has and is it then a very steep decline from that point on? Yeah, yeah. Um... So bone loves estrogen because we have two kinds of cells. One, you remember back in the day we used to have the Pac-Man machine? Think of those little Pac-Men. That's what osteoclasts are like. They munch on bone and they resorb it. And actually it's really important that we have those because they release calcium into the blood and we use calcium all through our blood. So if we haven't eaten any that day, we can always get that calcium that we need. We get it from the bone bank. And also if we have little cracks in bone, they can go along and resorb those cracks. And then after that, the other kind of bone cells, osteoblasts, come along and they lay down new bone. That's the incredible thing about bone tissue. It's this amazing tissue that can remodel itself with these two little bone cells. So estrogen has a way of kind of clamping down on the Pac-Man, sort of stopping those osteoclasts from resorbing too much. And when you go through menopause, of course, circulating estrogen in your blood just essentially vanishes. And the osteoclasts go, yippee, it's dinner time. And they start resorbing bone like crazy. And that's why we have this rapid loss of bone for about five to eight years um, through menopause. And 
for some people, if they didn't start off in a very good place, you know, they didn't get a high peak bone mass, then that can put them in the fracture zone. Really, really important to maintain your physical activity during those years because that will somewhat counteract. It's a very powerful force, so it's hard to completely counteract that loss um, due to estrogen withdrawal. So once you're actually in menopause, you're saying that the damage has sort of been done through that process of our reducing in oestrogen, but once we get to the end and we're sort of out the other side and uh, we're trying to embrace it here at the Ageing Project, that menopause is the start of a whole new world and it's very <laughs> exciting, Belinda. Um, <laughs> but then we are actually sort of out of that, that danger zone and it is time to, to start the rebuild again. Well, as I say, there's no need to stop exercising during menopause at all in fact it's you know really really good for you uh, for all manner of reasons uh, and it'll prevent some of that loss uh, but then yes it does the bone loss does even out a little bit goes back to sort of we lose about the same as men after you know after a while by the time we're 60 that loss is roughly the same as men again but of course we've got this big difference between men and women because we didn't ever get as much and we lost more across life and so that partly explains why we're more susceptible to osteoporosis but we absolutely should be exercising at every stage kids young adults perimenopause menopause postmenopause always always exercise Professor, often we're a little bit concerned or confused about what to ask our GP if we have uh, concerns about anything. If we wanted to, say, find out our bone density, is the GP the best place to start? Yeah, I, I would say so. And uh, the awareness of osteoporosis is not high but definitely growing. And if a patient goes to a GP and raises it with their GP uh, if, if the GP doesn't raise it with them, then that's absolutely the best way to get some some action. Uh, request a bone density exam. Now, DEXA, Dual Energy X-ray Absorptiometry, that's what DEXA stands for, is the most common way to evaluate bone. It's highly recognisable. It's quick. It's easy. It does have a little bit of radiation, but it's very, very low. Um, it's not perfect, but it's probably the best we've got. It it is highly related to your risk of fracture. If your if your bone density is low, you are at higher risk of fracture. Um, so the doctor will will get those results and then they will sort of have that conversation with you. But I suppose the one thing to remember is that the way uh, bone health is sort of categorised is it's either normal. Um, or it's osteopenia, which is low bone mass, or it's osteoporotic. Because if you think about the bell curve, you know the normal bell curve of, of everybody in the population and you think about their bone mass plotted on this curve, you see most people are sort of in the middle. There's some with really, really high bone mass and some with really, really low bone mass. The ones with really low bone mass measured by DEXA are at quite high risk of fracture. But most people are in the big part of the bell and most people actually have osteopenia or just low bone mass. And those people are fracturing. In fact, because there's so many more of them, more people fracture with osteopenia than osteoporosis. It's purely 
because of statistics. The reason I say that is because if you go and get a DEXA scan and say, oh, it's okay, you've just got osteopenia, it's no, that's a big red flag. You're in the danger zone. If you haven't done anything yet, it's time to do it now. Don't wait till you've got osteoporosis according to the DEXA machine. You are still at increased risk. Really, really important to do something before you have the first fracture. Right. So is there a number in there? I imagine that DEXA has has the scale. Mm-hmm. Where is the middle? Um, and either side of that, how much how much range do we have before we have to take control and actually ask for more support and more advice? Yeah, great question. Um, there is a number. And so, you know, when I was talking about the bell curve, Uh, We use the bell curve to sort of describe standard deviations. This is just uh, a certain amount away from the midline. The the DEXA scans produce what's called a T-score, and a T-score is essentially a standard deviation. So a T-score of minus one, that means one standard deviation below the mean, to minus 2.5 is considered osteopenic. Okay, so a T-score in that, that's quite low. And a T-score of minus 2.5, two and a half standard deviations away from the mean, and worse, that's osteoporotic. So those are the numbers. Osteoporosis is a T-score of minus 2.5, or two and a half standard deviations lower than the mean. But remember, that minus 1 to minus 2.5 T-score, that's osteopenic, and that's your red flag zone. So anywhere on the minus side, it's time to start doing something. Anywhere on the plus side, it's time to keep doing something. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Remembering that, um, you know, you you shouldn't be full of self-loathing when you discover you've got this terrible T-score. Blame your your ancestors. This is genetic. It's it's a lot of the time it's nothing you did. Um, If you're a small person, a little tiny person, you're much more likely to have osteoporosis. But um, if you're a big person and you have osteoporosis, then uh, it still is likely to be genetic. But everybody can have a good diet and start exercising. And the beauty, what we've heard from you today, Professor, is that everybody can make a difference. That's not genetic. Uh, You can get out there. You can get the support you need. You can get the advice from the professionals. You can start doing some weight-bearing exercise and you are going to grow more bone. That is a fact. That is what I believe. Well, there's nothing stopping us now, is there? We've heard it from the experts time and time again from Professor Belinda Beck today. Just get out there and do it. Of course, do it carefully, do it wisely, get support, get advice, and look up the Bone Clinic. There are O'Neiro specialists all around the country that can help you if you are fearing starting exercise again. That sounds like a great place to start. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor. My pleasure. Who knew there was so much to learn about bone health? If I'm honest, osteoporosis was one of those topics I associated with women in their 80s or 90s. So learning it can impact us much earlier is very important. It's time to take action now. None of us want to be at the risk of fracture. And I wonder if many women believe calcium is the answer when in fact, as we've learned, it's just one part of a preventative and bone building strategy. 
We heard, yes, calcium does matter, but so does vitamin D. And let's not forget exercise. To my fellow walkers, Belinda was clear it's not enough. Hello, weight-bearing exercise, here we come. If you have any concerns, perhaps the bone density scan might be of interest to you. A big thank you to Belinda for spending time with us. Your dedication to bone health has left me feeling more motivated to take better care of my bones. After all, we only get one set of those. As always, thank you for being a part of the Aging Project community. I'm Shelley Craft, and remember, when it comes to aging well, your daily choices will add up over the next decade. So what's one small choice you are going to make in your favour today? For me... It, I am off to bash my bones, <laughs> so I will see you next week. Bye. As always, the Aging Project podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. Always seek medical advice from a qualified practitioner.